We're in a series that we've entitled The Forgotten War. It's the idea that there's a spiritual battle happening around us, and whether we like it or not, we're in the middle of it. And we've spent several weeks talking about this, and if you've missed some different uh, weekends, I'd encourage you to get it on our podcast or watch it online. But we're kind of coming to the close of this series. This weekend and next weekend is actually our final weekend. And last weekend I talked about this grid that I used to kind of uh, keep me in check and being mindful of my relationships, my up in and out relationships. My up relationship is kind of how I'm connecting to God or how I'm not connecting to God. My in relationship is kind of how I connect to myself and my relationship to myself, which we talked about last week. And then this weekend and next weekend, we're going to be talking about how it affects our out relationships, the relationships with those around us closely knit and those relationships with those of us in our communities and in our workspaces. And we're actually going to spend two weeks talking about kind of our relationship to others and our community because it's that important to God. Because God designed us to be in community. There was a study that came out um, in recent years, but about a community in the city of Rosetto in the state of Pennsylvania. And basically in the 1960s, two doctors got together over beers and were talking about the individuals and the issues they were dealing with in their different communities. One doctor is from the Rosetto community. One doctor is from a neighboring community. And in their dialogue, they began to discuss about what was happening in the national average of heart disease and heart attacks and and different heart health issues. And interestingly enough, the Rosetto doctor expressed to the other doctor that he has an extremely low rate of heart disease and heart attacks. And his friend said, what are you talking about? Like, the national average is here. And he goes, yeah, I know, but we're like all the way down there. And he's like, how is that possible? Do you know about your community? I mean, we all know this community is a very Italian community. The Rosetto community was a community started by Italian immigrants. And these Italian immigrants loved some really interesting things like meatballs, pasta, lots of cigars. They probably drank more wine than they drank water. And when he began looking at Rosetta community, he goes, your community should have double the rate of heart disease and heart attacks because you do everything in your community that I tell my community not to do. And he goes, I know, it's, it's crazy. Like, not only that, not only smoking stogies all day long, drinking tons of wine and eating meatballs all day, they also work in the mines and are inhaling these unhealthy gases and stuff. And so people have studied this and they've come up with one thing that they've realized is that the element that enabled these individuals to do all the worst things for their heart yet be healthier than the rest. And I don't know what that is, so we're going to move on. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) So they've called it the Rosetto effect, and what they've discovered is this. The one thing that that Rosetto community had than any other community in the surrounding area, in fact, maybe than any other community in America at that time, was a sense of community. That these Italian-American, these Italian families that immigrated to America had such a radical form of love and friendship, commitment and desire to push through conflict, that because of that, their stress level was tremendously lower than everyone else. That regardless of what they're eating, drinking, and smoking, they actually were happier because of their commitment to one another. Now, they know that to be true because as they tracked the Rosetta community into the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the kind of patriarchs of the community began to die off, that community became more Americanized, which actually made it more stressed, which in turn made their rates become equal with the national average. 
See, community is something we take for granted all too often. Yet as human beings, we're designed for community. We were made in the image of God, who is three in one. He's got diversity in his Godhead, yet choosing in their diversity to work together for the good of all of us. When Jesus came and walked on the earth, he had the plan to save the entire world. And he submitted that plan to 12 teenagers who he chose to work with. He sent those teenagers out two by two. And in fact, in Scripture, it says when, when we gather as two or more, he is in our midst. See, community is at the foundation of how we're meant to function. We need our togetherness. And so what's the thing the enemy's going to attack? Our community. And we're seeing that right now. I'm not going to read negative stats on marriage because they don't matter much anymore. You know why? Because people just aren't getting married anymore. <laughs> Look how he's mixing up roles and how he's pushing down men and trying to push forward women and confusing everything in his desire to do what? Break up our community. Wreck our relationships. Now, when I look at Scripture, I, I always look at the Word going, okay, Lord, then what, what does your Word have to say about this? What are, what are things we can understand about the enemy and how he's trying to weasel his way in to break up our relationships? What are the things that he's doing to create destruction in our relationships? And as I looked through Scripture, I, thought, I saw three main things. The enemy loves lies. He loves jealousy and he loves unforgiveness. If he can see lies be stirred up in relationships, if he can see jealousy kind of be rampant in relationships, and if he can eventually get people to hold grudges against each other, then he knows that's going to break up people's relationship with others. And so the enemy desires to do this. He desires to break up your friendships, your marriages, your relationships at work. He wants to provide stress for you and to bring in lack of well-being, so that you feel like you're incapacitated to serve God. But thankfully, we have God's word, and we acknowledge that we are in a war, and we can see his strategy coming from a mile away, and we can make war on those strategies when he tries to come and break up our relationship with others. So let's start with lies. When I lived in Hawaii, for those of you that are in construction, you might know this is kind of weird. Uh, because the weather kind of doesn't change too much there, typically the wall structure is sheetrock, studs, outer panel, and then siding. There's no kind of insulation typically in the old homes. They just kind of pop these things up and said, oh, I got a beach, I'm going to live here forever. And so this home I was living in was a nice home, but um, it was made probably about 50 or so years ago. And one day while I was walking through a small foyer, I noticed that the tile grout was starting to change color. So I cleaned it and kind of scrubbed off the stuff. And it was weird how it started taking a dark color. And sure enough, as time went on, a few months to over a year, the color kind of kept spreading out. And I thought, man, maybe something's wrong here. But everything seemed to be fine. I noticed that if I walked close to the edge of the tile, met the wall, and I kind of leaned on it, it was bouncing a little bit. But I'm like, ah, it's termites. They're holding hands. It'll be just fine. <laughs> well, sure enough, after several months, I walked by one day. And as I walked close to that edge, my foot went through the tile and through the floor onto the lava rock below. And there was a massive hole there. And I began looking, and I could see it wasn't termite damage. It was literally rot from some kind of moisture. So I eventually started pulling it apart, trying to find the wood that wasn't wet, and got into the wood and had to pull apart the sheetrock. And as I got in, I noticed a really interesting design feature that they added in this home. They put drainage pipes because the roof was flat. Instead of putting drainage pipes outside the house, they decided to run the drainage pipes through between the studs in the wall. And when I looked up, I noticed that 
whoever was building these drainage pipes to go to the ceiling neglected to put the final piece at the top. And basically it was a hole, a gap, and then the drainage pipe. And over a course of about 40 years of rains coming through here and there, the rain leaked out, didn't land inside the pipe, and eventually destroyed the entirety of that floor. We had to tear out the entirety of the floor, the entirety of the wall, and fix the entire thing. It took years for it to happen. It wasn't a ton of water. It wasn't an instant flood. But that's the way lies work. Lies come in like a small drip that initially doesn't feel like it's going to have any issue in our life, but that small drip in the right place over a period of time will erode and destroy things. And to be honest, in some ways, we all tell lies. Maybe they're not like outward lies. Maybe they're not like blatant lies. But in many ways, we all live in a way where we kind of tell different lies. And I'm going to read some of them. And at first, it's going to feel like, I don't do that. But when you hear about it in the context of maybe a familiar way of functioning, you might say, wow, I kind of am guilty of that. Deception. Many of you would say, I don't deceive anyone. Well, we don't intentionally do it, but when was the last time you really told your true life on your Instagram? When was the last time you were really forward about how you really felt and what you were going through? Oftentimes, we think we just constantly have to put forward our best foot, the most positive thing, when we look the best. But then what happens is when that perception gets pushed out there, then we get discouraged when we're really struggling and people aren't coming and helping us. But how would they know to help us if in some ways we're telling everyone everything is great? And so the enemy plays on that. He goes, yes, everything's great. Don't worry about them. And then he plays on it with you saying, see, none of your friends actually care. They really care. They would call to talk to you. But what we don't realize is because we're presenting this front to people, everyone thinks everything's always okay. But the enemy likes to get in there and use that to break apart our friendships. Slander. It's a strong word. And none of us would ever say, I'm one that likes to slander. But how often are we in a conversation with someone and one of our friends comes and tells us something positive about someone else and we kind of don't like what they said and we kind of follow that conversation with this. Oh yeah, that sounds great. But did you hear? And it's usually at that point in some way where we drop some negativity or we slander them in a kind way. And then that little lie or that lack of truth or that mistruth gets shared with that person, and that person goes away thinking about that, and the enemy works in that, and it begins to break apart the relationship. Gossip. (laughs) We don't got to talk much about that one. We love that one. (laughs) Gossip in the church has the classic phrase that goes like this. I just want to tell you this so you can pray about it. Yeah, if someone starts that with you in a conversation, no, you probably shouldn't let them finish what they have to say. (laughs) Because when gossip comes in, it's a false truth, mistruth, and it creates room for the enemy to stir and spread, and it begins to build in our relationships like cancer. Oftentimes, we create fake news around different scenarios. We create false narratives that we want information to go into so it's, we can control the information that's being shared. We do all these things kind of not even considering what what's happening, but oftentimes these little basic things are lies that the enemy then gets to play on in each other's minds. The enemy gets to play in this playground and build emotional distress and build angst and build frustration to the point that then all of a sudden we realize the friend that we have isn't our friend anymore. And we're not sure how we got there. I'm not sure how this huge hole is in my living room with the wall torn out, but it's because of a little drip over a long period of time. 
Jesus talks a lot about this. He says, our lies come from the father of lies, Satan. He says that the father of lies loves to tell these lies, play on these lies, allow these lies to drip into our lives because these things will break apart our relationship. But thankfully, we don't serve the father of lies. We serve the father of truth. And we can know his truth We can know his truth about us, and we can become like him in that we can speak truth to others. My wife grew up in a family that her father oftentimes dismissed her anytime she had something to say to the family. And because of that, the enemy kind of worked out, and because of other things too, this idea that her words didn't matter. That her spoken words to others really had no weight. So even though my wife is tremendously articulate, a great person to be in front of people presenting information, oftentimes when she stands in front of people, she begins to doubt that because she thinks, does anyone really want to hear what I have to say? It's a lie that was sown in her youth that now the enemy plays in. So as her husband, I do my best to be a true speaker and say, no, I'm, I honestly can say you're actually really good. That, I'm not just saying this, you're actually really articulate. And because my face when I'm sitting and thinking doesn't look very pleasant, If I'm in the room when she's publicly speaking, I make a face like this. So after a period of time of doing that, she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just, I want to speak truth over you. I want to genuinely let you know you're doing really good, and I don't want to give room for the enemy at all to stir a lie in you. Well, recently we were at a conference, and she got asked to speak at just a pop thing. Our friend came and said, hey, would you get on a panel with me? And she said, okay, and so I was getting all ready for it, but she said, I don't always have to do that. So I thought, well, I'll start out with that, and then, you know, I'll temper it and maybe not do it so much. So she starts speaking, and I'm like, <gasps> but then after a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't have to keep doing this. And so then I'm like realizing that I ate too much at lunch, and I kind of look kind of fat in the moment, and I'm like, so then I'm making a face like this. And she comes off the stage, and she goes, what did I say wrong? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you were all happy, and then you looked so stressed out. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I said, no, it's not that. And I explained, and we laughed about it. See, I have the capacity to step into her world where the enemy wants to play lies and be a truth teller. Speak truth. Live truth. Speak that over her. We have the capacity in our relationships that when the enemy comes and tries to attack us with lies in our relationships, we can resist him by speaking truth. What would it look like to be truth speakers? I'm not saying flattery. Okay, flattery is a lie as well. I'm saying genuine truth over people in our workspaces and our relationships. How might our relationships change? How might we have a lot less stress knowing that we are truth speakers because Jesus is our father and he's the father of all truth. The second thing I see the enemy attack in our relationships is through jealousy. Now I say jealousy, but the biblical term that I kind of like is the word covet. I know a lot of people don't use that term. But it's interesting because in the Ten Commandments, about 40% of them have to do with jealousy and coveting. Most likely because that was the root thing that caused the enemy to have pride swell to think he could take from God. He was coveting the power of God. He didn't want what God gave him. He wanted what God had. And so in many ways, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the last four actually talk about that. It says in the last commandment, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's belongings and home and house. It, it also says, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is coveting someone else's wife or, or a person that's not supposed to be your wife. Or thou shalt not steal is another one, which is another form of coveting or jealousy. Even in some ways, thou shalt not murder can kind of be rooted in there with some form of jealousy. Jealousy is a big thing for us. But oftentimes, we don't recognize jealousy 
as an attack of the enemy trying to stir negativity in the relationships of those around us. In James, James really understood how jealousy was, had the opportunity to be in the enemy's attack against their community. See, the letter of James is written during a time when a huge famine had hit that land. Uh, famine is much different than depression. Uh, depression is a lack of work and a lack of economic ability to provide for yourself. Famine is that plus everyone starving and dying. Okay, it's a, it's a, uh, there's not just a lack of work. There's no grain. We weren't able to create a harvest. No one can eat. And so here's this new thing called the church where you had people that were in poverty sitting alongside people that had wealth. And all of a sudden a famine hits the land and what it appears is that the wealth are eating and keeping their own stuff and the poor people are struggling and dying. And so James writes this whole letter about kind of justice in that scenario. Like if you have something, you should, you should share it. If, if you believe that Jesus loved you, you should share that love with others. And so he kind of calls out the wealthy people, but then he also calls out those that have nothing. And what does he call out? He calls out their jealousy. And I would think in some ways, <laughs> it's a famine, James. Lighten up a little bit. Let people be a little jealous. They're dying, for goodness sakes. But James didn't want the enemy to attack them, even though they didn't have the chance to even eat. So he addresses their desire for what other people had. James chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, he says, But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. <laughs> For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. He's attaching jealousy to the enemy. <laughs> he continues in chapter 4, verses 1, to, 1 through 2. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? We've been talking about that very thing. <clears throat> you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. See, we struggle with jealousy. We struggle with coveting what other people have. Now, we're not in a famine. We're not even necessarily in a depression. Maybe a recession might be coming. We're not too sure. But we have it pretty good in America. And so our jealousy doesn't really play out in the matter of going, wow, I can't feed my family, he can. But it's much more subtle than that. In many ways, it's so subtle we don't call it out. Because it's things like, I wish I had their car. I wish I had his wife. Not really, but maybe. <laughs> I wish my friendship functioned like their friendships. Why didn't they text me when they went there? I noticed on social media that they were at that one show that I wanted to go to and they didn't invite me. Is it because that I don't have value and maybe they don't like me? I wish I had friends like them. I wish they viewed me as the way they viewed their friends that came with them there. And man, because of that, I guess they don't like me. I guess, well, you know what? I'm just going to block their social media, unfriend them, unlike them. And then I'm just going to... This is the way the enemy works. He pulls in this jealousy, captures on us in it, and begins to break apart our relationships. He begins to, to, to make us jealous of our spouse's time at work, or jealous of who gets the kids when, or jealous of these different things. And, and what happens is it creates these roots that create an opportunity for the enemy to come in and do what? Break apart our relationships. When you acknowledge that the enemy's coming at you with jealousy, here's how you fight it. With generosity. 
You go, you know what? I have everything I need. I have everything that God says I need. And not only that, I'm going to be generous with it. I'm going to be generous with my time. I'm going to be generous with my money. I'm even going to be generous with my words. And I promise you, as I've been one that's coveted friends' ministries, wishing mine was as successful as theirs, and because of my jealousy in that manner, began to sow seeds of divide between our relationship, not because of anything they did, but because of everything that was in my heart. The moment that I recognized it was the enemy and spoke, even though it killed me to do it, positivity of what God was doing in the ministry, my heart changed like that. I then wanted to work for them. <laughs> when the enemy comes in with jealousy to break up your relationships, find ways to be generous with your words, your time, and even your money. And lastly, the enemy works against us with lies in which we stand with our Father of truth and speak truth. The enemy works against us with jealousy in which we respond with generosity. And lastly, the enemy loves to sow unforgiveness in our relationships. Do you realize that science and doctors have come out with research that unforgiveness is at the root cause of many of the diseases that are killing us today? Heart attacks, heart disease, cancer, all different kinds of illnesses. That people that have grudges struggle with back pain, struggle with low immune systems, get sick more frequently. Not only that, they've actually categorized now as a disease, those of us that have an inability to be forgiving. Because they would say, why can't you just be forgiving? But some of us hold grudges so deep that in doing so, it's making us sick. And they've now categorized that as a certain kind of disease. Oh, yeah, I understand what you have. You have unforgiveness. And that's literally the script that they're writing. Because it's become rampant so much in our lives. It's become so prevalent for many of us, yet it's the very thing Jesus commanded us not to do. There's a great parable in Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive or how should I forgive? And Jesus talks about 70 times 7. Then he says, well, let me tell you a story. He says there's a king and this king ruled the land and one of his servants came to him and confessed that he had a debt and of course he had a debt. In fact, that debt was huge. It was kind of categorized in the millions of dollars kind of debt. So the king looked at him and goes, man, you owe me a lot of money. Here, there's no way you're going to pay this. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell you, your wife, and your children. And then I'm going to get the money I need to cover for this debt. Of course, the servant was shocked by this, threw himself at the feet of the king and said, please have pity on me. I beg for your mercy. And in that moment, the king, in a point of compassion or whatever, looked at him and said, all right, fine. You know what? Just go. I forgive your debt. Well, that guy marched out there, cheering, I'm sure, shares his family. But, of course, the joy was short-lived as that man found out that one of his servants owed him some money. But it wasn't millions. It was only thousands. Yet this man in the parables, Jesus says, went over and grabbed his servant by the neck and said, you owe me this money, and then threw that servant into jail because he said, you're not going to pay that money. You're going to pay for a time in prison. Of course, some of the servants heard this and were like, oh my gosh. And the word got back to the king that this man had did that. And the king called the man up in front of him and said, what are you doing? I just forgave a debt of millions of dollars that you're going to go and hold your servant by the neck and throw him in prison just for $1,000? And so the king looked at him and goes, you know what? You're done. And throws that man in prison. And Jesus closed the parable with this. He says, my father will do the same to you if you don't forgive others. Oh, 
Jesus, the loving one, that's so offending. <laughs> but to Jesus, that was the depth of how important it was to be forgiving to one another. And to be honest, when we're not forgiving, we're in our own prison, aren't we? We're in our own prison, our own self-pity, grudge prison that's making us sick. In many ways, he doesn't have to throw us into any prison. We put ourselves there as we're trapped and aching in the frustration of this grudge. When you see forgiveness, unforgiveness start to grow in your heart, when you feel a desire to hold grudges, and you see the enemies working against you in that way, here's how you fight it. Forgive. <laughs> Let it go. It's not about holding something over them. It's about setting yourself free from the scenario. There's a movie I just watched recently called Honey Boy. I'm not commending the movie. If you want to see it, you can, but don't go around and say, oh my gosh, there's an F-bomb. My pastor told me to watch this. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> But I watched it because the story behind the film is fascinating. The film tells the story of Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf is a kid actor that kind of grew up in front of us and became an adult with Transformer movies, the remake of Indiana Jones, and a variety of other films. And of course, we know when he got older in life, he had a lot of problems, specifically alcoholism, in which case he tried to fight a cop, a bunch of different stuff, and he gets thrown into a rehab, a government-issued rehab. And it's in that rehab where he's getting pushed every day by the uh, people that are trying to help him, the psychiatric help and all the rest. And they're trying to find out what's the root of all this, in which time he comes to the realization that the root of all of the sickness in his life right now is because he's holding a grudge against his father. Because his father did some really messed up stuff for him. And so he begins to write the story of his father and what his father did to him, how it affected him. And all of a sudden he realizes that in writing out this healing of forgiving his father, he realizes he just created a movie script. And so he decides, I'm going to tell this story. I'm going to tell my story. And as he's picking the actors, <laughs> in the greatest act of forgiveness one could do, you know what he did? He chose to play his abusive father in the film. Because he wanted to acknowledge that he saw the world through his father's eyes, and he still chose to forgive him. At the closing of the film, there's some narration, and most people wouldn't catch it, but I caught it and went online and researched the script to kind of get the quote of what he said. And this is what Shia LaBeouf ended his script with saying in the film. Every single one of us got a grudge. Every single one of us got someone that messed us over. I know you got one. You got to lay your grudge down or it's going to kill you. Jesus understood that. And so he expressed the greatest form of forgiveness, that we would be so overcome by his forgiveness that we would be people that now keep short accounts, do our best to live with hearts unoffended so we could have joy in our lives, not bound by these grudges. And so when the enemy tries to stir up unforgiveness, brings up that one time that you and your spouse had an argument when you were dating, now you've buried for 15 years and it keeps coming up, that is a couple you would acknowledge this is unreasonable that we're thinking about this. Surely it's because the enemy is trying to attack our marriage. And we're not going to stand for it. I forgive you. You forgave me. We're not going to give any ground for the enemy to come in and break up our love. When the enemy tries to come and stir those lies, understand that you can speak truth. When the enemy tries to come and stir jealousy, fight against that with your generosity. And when the enemy tries to get you to carry the weight, the baggage of a grudge and unforgiveness, just let it go. They've come to find out that people's well-being is greater enhanced when they forgive unconditionally. They found that people that forgive 
with a desire for justice, actually their well-being is tremendously lower than those who choose to forgive unconditionally. But Matt, do you understand what I've been to? I could sit up here and tell you a million stories. Abusive parents, got them. Drug-addicted parents, got them. Fights, arguments, got it. Difficulties, relationships, got it. I could raise my hand for every single one of those. But what's kept me going is understanding that if my father could forgive me for everything who I am, surely I can extend that forgiveness unconditionally to others. And that's enabled me to keep growing and finding joy in my life and helped me not let the enemy take more ground in my life. You can have victory in your life because Christ has already won the war, but you have to walk in that forgiving, you have to walk in that victory by speaking truth, being generous, and forgiving others.